0: Oh, oh, oh. Welcome to Tone Benders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee.
1: Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado and with me today, as always, is Timothy Muirhead. Uh, Dustin Camilleri is out today. He's got some really awful mouth sores, and so I hope everyone wishes him well. Yeah, it looks really horrible. It's really bad. You should see the pictures. They're awful. <laughs> I
0: bet he's chuffed you told everyone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so anyways, hi, Tim. Hey, how you doing? Also with us today is Michael Maroussas. Michael is a dialogue editor and supervising sound editor. He's got great films like Contraband, X-Men First Class, and Kick-Ass in his credits. Uh, he also founded and runs the Sound Collector's Club, which we'll be talking about in a little more detail later on in the second half of the show. Hi, Michael. How you doing, man?
0: Good, thanks. How are you?
1: Doing Great. You can find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado. Tim is at azimuth Audio. Dustin is at Pulse Train. And Michael is at Sonic Skepsi, which is S-O-N-I-C-S-K-E-P-S-I. And also he is at The SC Club. So let's do some comments.
2: The first comment we have today is in reference to a couple episodes ago. It's from Matt Glenn. He says, Very interesting stuff about the custom iPad configurations and key commands. A current project of mine uses a single iPad fader in Touch OSC to send MIDI triggers to a lighting console and crossfade between two lighting cues in a live dance performance. You can really do anything with this stuff. I was wondering if you guys had heard about Leap Motion, which can be found at LeapMotion.com. Have you guys seen that at all? Yeah, so the website's actually pretty
1: cool. It's got a really great little demo. I guess the question would be exactly how responsive it is and how the latency works. Uh, Tim, why don't you describe a little bit of what that looks like and how it works?
2: Yeah, it's very much like Tom Cruise in the Minority Report, if anyone's seen that. It's a sensor that you kind of place in front of you, and by moving your hands above the sensor and towards the screen in a 3D environment, you can just point and grab things and twist them in the air. Uh, The screen is still your typical computer monitor, but you can control it by moving your hands in front of it without actually touching anything. It's all just gestures in the air. And I'm not sure if anything has really been designed in terms of sound design for it, but it seems like it could be something cool in the future. That's kind of Microsoft Kinect style.
1: Yeah, exactly. 3D space things. I think for synthesis and for just general tone creation, it would be pretty cool.
2: Yeah, so we'll have to see how that develops and how it grows because it's definitely something to watch. It might be the same thing that we talked about about that Raven system during that episode when we talked about the iPad for sound design. That it just might be exhausting to be moving your hands around in front of you all day. But I think for certain specific jobs in sound manipulation, it could be a really cool evolution of control for that kind of stuff. I think what I would want to do if I were editing is
1: still use the mouse. I think it would be really hard to break out of the mouse paradigm. But with regards to creating sounds and and making sounds in the synthesis world and manipulating sounds with regards to time and pitch and all of that, I think all these other interfaces that are coming out are really exciting.
0: It's those gestural things, little nuances and little details like that, which those sort of things come into their own, isn't it?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of feel to it that you can actually kind of get back into it. I mean, it really is going to start to turn into where you're playing an instrument again, even if that instrument is just the space in front of your hands.
2: For sure. So thanks, Matt Glenn, for that question. Uh, We also want to thank Thomas Dragon in Hungary and last week's guest, Paul Verostek, for writing some cool blog posts about this uh, podcast. We really appreciate you helping spread the word on that. We also got a uh, note from Jeff Hinton, who says, Great job, guys. Thanks for putting this out. we love for you guys to continue bringing in guests. It's nice to hear different perspectives in various areas of sound design. So that's the only reason we brought Michael in. Yeah, that yeah. If it wasn't for that, there's no way he'd
0: be here. I've got a different perspective. Not necessarily a good perspective, I've got a different perspective. <laughs>
2: Jeff, thanks for that. We definitely agree with you. And we're going to try and continue to bring in people because, you know, I want to talk to more people too. And I'm sure Renee does. And it's just great to have uh, more people put their opinions into the pot.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of the reason we're doing this is just to hear other perspectives and hear how our opinions match and don't match with what other people do. I think the metadata episode was a really good kind of illustration of that because of how different Dustin and I are with regards to how we approach our metadata and sound effects databasing. That
2: was fun. For sure. And then the final comment that we'll talk about today is from uh, SC Audio, who is Simon Charles, who's in Dubai, I believe. Loving the shows. Really great to finally have a show dedicated to professional sound production. The quality of the show is fantastic, as I would expect nothing less. Great to hear the differing and often aligned opinions on workflow, software, and use of kit, etc. I've been following Rene on Twitter for quite a while now, and he has had some great conversations with me about KIT, especially the Sony D50 and the Line Audio CM3 mics. Both of those were purchased after discussions with Rene. Dustin and Tim, you both have a new follower on Twitter as well. Looking forward to many new shows. Nice. Yeah, I remember
1: Simon hit me up on Twitter, and we talked back and forth about those Line Audio mics. I really, really love those Line Audio mics because they don't cost anything, and they're really tiny mics, and they sound amazing. And... He was hitting me up back and forth and asking for audio samples, and I was giving him audio samples. And at some point, I was like, just buy them, man. And he did. <laughs> and you know, and I actually bought an extra set, so I've got four of them now. And I'm glad I did, because apparently the guy that makes them burnt out um, and is not making them right now.
0: Yeah, I looked on the website recently, and I saw they're not making those all out of stock, or at least, or something like that. But
1: Yeah, the one guy in Sweden that makes him in his garage just got overwhelmed and stopped.
0: Since you did your post
1: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, it was more than just me. I mean, the whole gear sluts community went nuts on those and everyone loves them.
0: Well, I hadn't heard of them until you posted about it. I'd never heard of that brand at all.
1: Yeah, well, you know, a lot of the classical music guys were using them in lieu of the Sheps mics, in lieu of the CMC6 with the MK4 head, because mm. they sound very similar. And so, obviously, those are really great sound effects recording mics as well. Yeah. But his price was low enough, and the demand was high enough, and it's just one guy to where he, he had to stop. And so, even though those mics didn't cost me a lot of money, I value them very highly right now
0: because I don't know that I could replace them. Yeah. Obviously, I've been able to hear them because of your shares on Sound Collectors Club. So... Yeah. No, they've sounded great, everything you put on. I've just put some new stuff up today, too. It'll be fun. The Skyline stuff? Yeah. Cool.
2: We'll talk about that in a minute. Thanks for the comments, everybody. Feel free to leave comments, we love getting them. You can leave them at tonebenders.net in the comment section for each episode. Right now we have an interview with Dustin Kaywood, a sound designer based at Skywalker Ranch in California. And he recently did the sound design for the film Chasing Ice, and he sat down with me from his edit suite at Skywalker to talk about how that went. Today we have Dustin Kaywood in to talk about the sound that he did for the documentary Chasing Ice. Chasing Ice follows the extreme ice survey started by photographer James Balog as he tries to capture glacier decline through time-lapse photography. He sets up 25 cameras throughout Iceland, Greenland, and Alaska taking pictures every hour over the course of a few years. The film features breathtaking scenery in the barren wilds of these ice-filled landscapes and shocking footage of how these glaciers are disappearing. In
3: 1984, the glacier was down there 11 miles away. And today, it's back here, it receded 11 miles. The glacier is retreating, but it's also thinning at the same time. It's like air
2: being let out of a balloon. You can see what's called the trim line. It's the high-water
1: mark of the glacier in 1984. That vertical change
3: is the height of the Empire State Building.
2: Dustin was a sound designer on Chasing Ice. His previous credits include lots of animated features, Toy Story 3, WALL-E, Horton Hears a Who, and Ratatouille, as well as big-budget dramas, Lincoln, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, and J.J. Abrams' Super 8. All these thrillers and dramas and animations seem quite different from documentaries. So, Dustin, tell us, how did you find yourself working on Chasing Ice?
3: Yeah, you're right. I don't get the opportunity very often to work on documentaries. Um, This is actually only the second documentary I've worked on. Mainly, it came down to... You know, Someone brought me the project, and it was just so absolutely stunning that I had to work on it. You know, I had to make time in my schedule to do it. It's just uh, something I believed in from the moment I saw it. I consider it a gift to have actually had the opportunity to work on this one. Jeff Orlowski, the director, he's just a fantastic guy. James Baylog, the, the subject matter, it's such an important message and such an important film that I, I just really feel like it was a blessing to me to be able to work on it. Seeing as you live in California, how did you
2: go about getting new, fresh sounds for a film that is essentially about only large, vast ice expanses?
3: Working at Skywalker Sound, we have a pretty vast library, tons of expeditions, you know, going out and recording glaciers. We've done that for many films. The film crew um, had, you know, 300-plus hours of location recording. So we we had all that at our back and call. Um, Being a documentary, not always the best recordings available, but... There was certainly a, a wealth of material to create these vast expanses of ice breaking off into the sea.
2: So, yeah, let's talk a bit more about the calving sequence. There's two of them in the film. Mm-hmm. The second one is described in the film as the largest calving event that has ever been caught on tape. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about recreating the sound of something that has basically no one's ever heard before?
3: essentially our biggest moment is that gigantic calving scene where you see they describe it as the lower tip of Manhattan breaking off and that essentially you know is captured from 2 miles away so if you listen to the audio recordings on that you know it's essentially they've got quite a few cameras on it but they're so far away and you're just really picking up wind noise at that point. You can hear a little bit of that in the dialogue back and forth between the guys and James over the phone. It's just, you know, kind of covered up in wind. They sat up there freezing and their tent being blown away for, you know, a couple of weeks just to capture this thing. So that was our main focus is to try to take, you know, actual calving sounds of a much, much smaller scale and and, and essentially scale that up to represent this giant event that – the best way they described it was it's like being underneath a 747 as as it buzzes you 10 feet off the ground or something. It was just extremely, extremely – uh, loud and rumbling, but you, you can't really convey that with the camera technology that they had out there on the side of the mountain. So
2: For sure. In the credits, it said that additional calving sounds were provided by Jason Amundsen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I googled him quickly, and he appears to be a scientist, not a field
3: recorder. So how did you hook up with him? If you see the credits of the film, it's essentially <laughs> pages and pages of PhDs and scientists who are <laughs> studying glaciers. So They had all that at their disposal, those recordings, and we got those, as well as some interesting seismometer recordings that I I wound up being able to work into the film. They basically take what is essentially a seismometer reading and we're converting it to sound. Something I hadn't heard of before, but I got those files and was able to process those and work those into the film as well. It was trying to orchestrate the different movements within that giant calving event. You've got essentially these cameras that are capturing everything, but they're zooming in. They're they're focusing on different points of this calving event. It's not just a giant rumble. You know, you've got massive sheets of ice sliding off. So in certain instances, you know, I took recordings of... Other objects sliding on ice and slowing those way down just to give it a sense of scale and also give it a sense of movement. You wouldn't necessarily hear in in any kind of captured audio from the scene itself. Because we were really going for, you know, authenticity and accuracy, my biggest concern was talking to some of the scientists afterwards and saying, did I come close, you know, to the massive scale of this and did we represent this well, you know? and the reaction i got was yeah we did <laughs> so Excellent. i'm i'm very happy about that i find that there's a tendency when you're
2: dealing with enormous events like this to just throw bass at it and just make it just this sludgy rumble. But the way you did it, there was obviously lots of bass in there and the theater's rumbling, but there was also layers in the mid range and then even some higher end slippery sounds in there. And I thought it really worked well. I was just wondering, were they all ice sounds that you used?
3: Were there any wood creaking or any other types of things that you threw in there? The vast majority is ice sounds. Like I said, there's the odd seismometer recording in there, and the sliding I mentioned was actually a car sliding on ice. Multiple recordings of cars sliding on ice and just really worked that <laughs> to try to to give the sense of movement. So there are other things in there. Vast majority, I'd say 95% are real ice sounds because, you know, it's it's a documentary. You don't want to take it to a Hollywood level. You try to be as accurate as possible. That was my big thing is if it didn't involve ice I didn't want to put it in there. <laughs> so there are some sweeteners in there, but that's just to really give it a sense of movement. You know, it, like you said, bass that would just get muddy really fast if it's just all bass and all rumble all the time. So it was a matter, a matter of weaving that in and out on top of those other levels, the mid-range and the higher-end material. I've traveled quite a bit through Iceland, and I found that you end up with recordings that are either one of two
2: ways. Mm-hmm. Either there's no wind, and since there's no birds and no trees, mm-hmm. you end up with recordings that are so clean, they almost sound like they were in a recording booth. Right. Like this scene from the film where they're setting up one of the cameras out on the glacier.
1: The yellow one okay. for the wire clips.
2: Or there's so much wind that it's almost unusable. Right. So I imagine that wind was uh, your biggest enemy on this film in terms of getting clean sound. Right. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you dealt with the issue of wind?
3: A lot of times we just had to do our best to cut around it and augment. There are scenes that are pretty covered up in wind that were also adding wind, to try to smooth out any of these giant jumps in dialogue. But for the most part, um, what's in the film hasn't been, you know, filtered. There's not been any kind of magic wind removal or or anything like that. You know, what we got was what we dealt with, what was in the cut. So we just did our best to try to work with what we had, to try to mask wind where it was popping in and out. And I think we did a decent job. You know, I think we did a pretty good job You know, there's only so far you can take that. So
2: I wondered if we could just talk a bit about your background in the industry. How did your path lead you from uh, university in Chattanooga? And now you're at Skywalker Ranch. So how did that uh, journey take place?
3: Well, I did undergrad in Chattanooga. And then I went to film school at Florida State, who has an excellent film school. Excellent people teaching audio post-production as well. Richard Portman was there. And he's still there as a professor emeritus. And his history, you know, goes all the way back to... Uh, the dawn of sound and motion pictures through his father, Clem Portman. Worked on the original King Kong, and then Richard started in the 50s. Worked on most of my favorite movies in the 70s. <laughs> you know, he imparted a lot of knowledge on me, and right out of film school, he helped me find some contacts in the industry, and I started at Pixar cutting story reels, which they do as the process goes along. Before we actually get into post-production, there. As they're working the story, we're cutting sound to these storyboard sequences. So that's kind of how I got my start. From there, just kind of migrated over to Skywalker, bounced back and forth for a little bit, and then wound up at Skywalker working with you know the people that inspired me when I really wanted to get into this line of work.
2: What is it like to work with the same people who inspired you to get in the business to begin with? <laughs>
3: You know, <laughs> I think back on it and I'm like, you know, as a kid watching documentaries on the making of Star Wars or Empire or Return of the Jedi or whatever. Mm-hmm. And actually seeing people doing this work for the first time and and that clicking with me that, you know, these people, there are people that make these things that I enjoy so well. Um, and I'd love to be able to do that. And now having the opportunity to work with those very people, it's, it's <laughs> sometimes you like kind of pinch yourself like, how did that work out? You don't ever plan on these kind of things, but I feel very fortunate that, that I'm working where I'm working. I noticed on your
2: IMDB page that you seem to fluctuate between some projects you're the sound designer and some projects you're a sound editor. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the difference between those two roles and what you like most about each of them?
3: Yeah, sure. You know, I'm kind of in a transition period. I've done a lot of sound editing. I'm doing more and more sound design. There's certainly a little bit more creative freedom when you are the designer. You know, you're creating the sounds. You're kind of more of an influence over the overall soundtrack. I certainly love being a sound editor on the films I'm working on for the very reason. I'm still working with those people that inspire me on a daily basis, and I'm learning from them. So as a sound designer, being more of a leadership creative role, as opposed to being a sound editor, you're still being very creative. but. You're also working towards the director's vision as well as another sound designer's vision, so both of which I enjoy immensely. Like I said, I learn a lot from everybody I work with, so, and I enjoy going back and forth, you know. It's nice to have a little change of pace. For sure.
2: A lot of times in Sound Post, we end up working on films that are uh, very satisfying technically. They're huge, they're bombastic, things are exploding. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, uh, there's no secondary meaning. It's just entertainment, which unto itself is a good thing. People need to be entertained. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering if you felt a film like Chasing Ice, which has a secondary level of importance, does that make it easier for you to get up every morning and go through the process of making the film?
3: Just like any other thing you do, if you believe in something, it's always easier. So not, it's not to say I don't believe in projects I've worked on, but if something makes a special connection with you on a story level, yeah, I think you're, it's easier to wrap yourself up in it, you know? It's it's easier to get carried along with it, and certainly, you know, it's it fires your creative juices. I've been very fortunate this year with both Chasing Ice and Lincoln, which I also feel is a very – very important film. To me, this year has been kind of tops for me as far as the types of projects I've been associated with this year. They just really have, have moved me, you know. And uh, so I feel like, you know, it's been a fortunate year for me in that respect. Uh, it's been, like you said, very easy to go in and do your work and, and try to do the best work you can possibly do. Speaking of the film Lincoln, was that the quietest film you've ever worked on? Probably, yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> In fact, at the time, I said this is like kind of sonic heaven, you know. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> it, it was all about the details, you know. It was all about the little, the, the, the small details, whereas other pictures, it's all about the big bombast, like you said. But this was really about the very small details. And we tried to be as, once again, as accurate as possible, like we did with Chasing Ice, but try to be as historically accurate with sound on Lincoln as possible. And that meant actually getting recordings of things that Lincoln would have heard in his day and age, his pocket watch, the bells outside of the White House, certain bells that are still in church towers that were actually ringing in his day, you know, that were created by the Paul Revere family. And it was really about creating the ambiance, you know, of... Of of Lincoln's era, and it was so different from anything I've really ever worked on. It was really about trying to put you in that same space, and on on a very subtle level. So, quiet, yeah, but uh, absolutely, extremely enjoyable to work on.
2: With Chasing Ice, it was director Jeff Orlowski's first feature. How is it different working with a first-time director compared to on Lincoln with Spielberg?
3: Every director is different, whether it be a first-time director or, you know, someone who's done hundreds of features. I I can't really compare them because every experience is different, you know. Jeff himself, you know, had a very good idea about sound. He went through a documentary filmmaking program himself, and he's certainly well-versed and studied in post-production. So he knew what he wanted coming in, and I think that's the most important thing of anybody you work with, whether it be a first-time director or, you know, someone who's done quite a few features, is if they really know what they want and can convey to you what they want and— then that's, you know, that's the most important thing. And that's a skill that, you know, either you have it or you don't. And I think Jeff's definitely got it. I mean, he he definitely knows the story he was trying to tell and and what was important to him from a sound standpoint. Excellent. So uh, what's up next for you? Uh, I can't really talk about it. (laughs) I'm not allowed (laughs) to discuss my projects I'm working on at the moment. I am working on a very large seismic event at the moment, Um, and that's about all I can say. (laughs) It's on the opposite end of the spectrum from Chasing Ice, but in a lot of ways, they have a lot in common. In fact, I might even throw some ice sounds in there. You never know. Excellent. That was Dustin
2: Kaywood, the sound designer on the new film Chasing Ice, playing in theaters everywhere. For information, go to www.chasingice.com. He was also the sound effects editor on Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, which is playing everywhere as well. So Dustin, thank you very much for being on the show and good luck on your next projects. Thank you. Here's the memory of the camera and this is actually, that's an interesting thought. This is the memory of the landscape.
1: That landscape is gone. It may never be seen again in the history of civilization and it's stored right here. That was a great interview. Yeah, cool.
2: Yeah, I just want to thank Dustin again for taking the time to talk to us. It was really uh, great for him to sit down and Let us know all the stuff that he went through with that film. Yeah, it's
1: interesting. I I bet his approach was probably very similar with regards to the documentary-style edit in Lincoln that that he had just gone through in Chasing Ice.
2: Yeah, because it definitely is a drama, but it's like a documentary for sure.
0: Michael, you ever do any docs? Any do any what, sorry? Any documentaries? No, 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 not for a long time, actually. But it's not from turning them down. I think some of them are great. There's some really good ones coming out, especially over the last few years, I think, but... That was a great interview. It really it reminds me of I'd read recently about Ben Burke going to record the actual pocket watch of Lincoln, mm-hmm. and I find that stuff really interesting because I just love all that authenticity element. But it's always an interesting divide, especially if it's going to cost a lot of money, always going to take a lot of organising or time. There's always that balancing of like is this actually going to sound great? I mean, I don't know if they got, it'd be really interesting to chat to Dustin actually, but if someone offered it to them for free or it was just, you know, able to access it, it was, you know, they were able to go and check it out first. But so often you have decisions to make in that way of like, should we go and pursue the real thing? Or if we go to all that bother and money, is it actually going to sound rubbish or do you know what I mean? But yeah, um, it's really interesting because I've read a couple of things about it. they've really gone to town on the authenticity, which is really cool.
1: Yeah. And you know, documentary budgets tend to be a lot smaller than film budgets too. So it's a lot harder to find that money at the end of the post process.
0: Yeah.
2: The interesting thing about Chasing Ice is it's a documentary and it's clearly a documentary, but this calving sequence, I know it hasn't played in Dallas yet, Renee, so you haven't seen it. It actually just opened in London for you, Michael, if you want to check it out. But the calving sequence, it looks like the most amazing special effects sequence you've ever seen, but it's real. So right. it's it's a bizarre thing. Like, it's a documentary, but it doesn't look like anything you've ever seen before. So it feels... Like, he talked about how there was a need to make it sound realistic, and I can tell that they probably pulled back some of the more amazing sound editing that they'd done just because you have to remind people this isn't a Roland Emmerich film. Like, this is actually real. And, like, they describe it in the film, I think I mentioned it in the interview, that... This chunk of ice that breaks off the glacier in Greenland is the same size as Manhattan Island. Yeah. Like it's enormous. And the footage is something that you can't really understand without seeing it, how big it is. It's definitely a documentary, but there's elements of it that are like the Avengers, like that sequence is bigger than life. Well, I guess it's not because it actually happened in life, but you know <laughs> what I mean. So that's why when I went to see it, I actually saw it with a friend of mine who is a, a re-recording engineer. And we left the theater and we went out for coffee and we just talked about like, oh, how'd they do that? And how did they, they figure out what the heck that would even sound like? And like, I had so many questions that I decided to track them down and uh, try and get them to answer them. So uh yeah it's definitely worth seeing this documentary. It's definitely stuff you've never seen before.
0: But that's the interesting thing about it is that because it's documentary like you're saying it's just you can't go OTT on all you know big Hollywood movie sound effects. But the thing about ice um which I've never experienced personally but there was a a patch I think about a year ago where there's just loads there was loads of stuff about ice recordings being posted online and they just some of them sounded absolutely amazing. Yeah, And so the, the, the real sound sounds cool. Do you know what I mean? You don't really need to sort of like hype it up in a way. But that's what's interesting compare, contrasting it with Lincoln, which obviously isn't a documentary. And there's different questions to ask about the role of authenticity in that way. Like, does it serve a purpose in entertainment? Or does an augmented version of a pocket watch or the bells and stuff actually serve a better role in terms of emotional content in a way? Do you know what I mean? It's just like a different question to ask about chasing those authentic sounds in a way.
1: Yeah. It is funny too. I've worked on a few documentaries. It's amazing how much sound you do have to cut into a doc. For sure. Because for the most part, those things get shot with the mic on the camera and that's it. And then when you come back and you put the story together, you have to add all the ambiences in. And you end up doing Foley and you end up, you know, cutting sound effects and doing that whole vibe. And yeah, you do have to always ask yourself, is this true to what probably actually happened out there? And in a lot of cases, you have to do extra research and saying, is this recording that I made in this part of the world going to fit? You know, are the birds right? Yeah. yeah. And things like that. Because you really do have to be careful in documentaries because it's so easy. I mean, documentaries are still edited. They still happen through the lens of an individual. As much as I love the, the mystique and the romance of a really good doc in the fact that it's something that's really rooted in reality and it's a production based on things that actually happen. Those things still go through the lens of the individuals that shoot and edit them. And I've actually produced some short film documentaries myself. And you find yourself making those decisions You find yourself saying, well, you know what, I'm not going to shoot that because I don't want to show that person in that light. You know, you find yourself making those decisions and those decisions get made all the way down. And so the documentary film style is a little bit of a misnomer in that an actual documentary would be incredibly boring to watch Um, (laughs) because it would just be cameras rolling on a whole bunch of nothing.
2: I actually had a really great perspective on documentaries. I too have worked on a lot of documentaries, and I start, when you've worked on them a lot, you start to take for granted the amount of uh, manipulation of the story that goes on. And recently, there was a big documentary shot. Uh, for Renee, you might have heard of the 30 for 30 series on ESPN. Oh, yeah. In Canada, there is a kind of the Canadian sports channel, TSN did one a series of documentaries along the same vein. And one of those documentaries was based on a Canadian football team that won the Grey Cup, which is Canada's version of the Super Bowl. And then in World War II, 13 of the players were drafted and killed within the next couple months after they won the Grey Cup. And my great-uncle was on that team. And uh, my mom and her cousins and everything, they grew up around a lot of those people. And when they saw the documentary, they were kind of... uh, awestruck by how many facts were not quite right and were manipulated to fit the story and I was like yeah that's how it's done that's how the world works and they were like no but he wasn't he never was there that day and so it, you do forget about because i am got my nose in it all the time how much people really expect a documentary to be spot-on dead-on accurate and that we really should be striving to do that and not take for granted how much manipulation we can do and try and be more accurate. And obviously the sound goes along with that.
1: Yeah, in the context of cutting the sound, it's like there is sometimes instances where you have to take a little liberty in order to make the thing sound like it looks. And in a lot of cases, you're not, you know, you don't know the backstory of the edit by the time you're getting the sound worked on. So, you know, you don't know what they left on the cutting room floor. And there may be some context that you're not aware of. And all you're trying to do as a sound editor on a documentary is make it sound like it looks. And sometimes the way that it looks may not be exactly how it happened. This is not to say anything about Chasing Ice, obviously. I think the challenge of editing sound for something like that is doing what Dustin had to do, which is to make the sounds live up to the crazy visuals that you're seeing, especially in those climactic moments.
2: For sure. Uh, So in that interview, Dustin Kaywood discusses making the transition from uh, sound editor to sound supervisor. And I believe, Michael, you've recently made that transition yourself.
0: Yes. For many years, I did sound effects and design uh, and dialogue editing. And about five years ago, my work tended to sort of veer towards more dialogue editing work. And I kind of felt the need to specialize and choose one or the other. And so I've sort of gone towards dialogue editing and ADR editing. And as a lot of people know, the sort of nature of... The roles you do tend to have more connection with post supervisors and director as a dialogue editor rather than as an effects editor. That can vary job to job. That's not like a, a rule, but you're involved with ADR sessions and you have a, tend to have a close relationship. So it kind of naturally involves into taking supervising sounders to well from that really. But um, that was kind of it really, just sort of developing good relationships and taking that step up to sort of taking control of everything rather than just the dialogue editor. How would you define that role? Like, in your mind,
1: what is a supervising sound editor and how is that different from a sound effects editor?
0: Well, on the project I've just finished, I pick the team, basically. So I kind of control the whole sound delivery. Um, You know, i choose a sound effects editor who I think will be appropriate for that job, the Foley team, who I think is right for that job, so you're kind of bringing the whole vision together and coordinating that team. So, is it
1: more coordinating people than it is actually manipulating sounds?
0: Oh, for me, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I'm not involved in the sound design and sound effects edits at all. When I've been supervising jobs, I'm taking care of dialogue and ADR and crowd. But it's kind of a double role that, that you know I've done that before and I've not been a supervisor, and I've been the dialogue and ADR editor. And the difference for me, because naturally by doing that you have that close relationship with post supervisor and uh, director and producer. But the difference in being the supervisor and sound editor for me is actually taking on being the team. You choose the team and you're you know, saying, right, we need to get that. And you're communicating to everyone and coordinating everyone, bringing the vision together in a way. Uh, and the buck stops with you, I guess, as well. It's just the extra responsibility of you, know, you bringing everything together and bringing it to the dub stage and uh, making sure everything's cool. But it's fun, it's really cool. I love that element of just bringing the team together and um, it has a strange overlap with a lot of the stuff I've done online as well with the Sound Collectors Club and things like that because you've got a lot of resources at your disposal and it's just people all around the world and stuff and I find that really cool that rather than just being a fun sort of side hobby that we do you know we just have a little chat online and share a few sound effects this is actually like can be work relationships you know in the future yeah for sure through remote collaboration and uh uh, the film i just finished working on was a french period drama and wants to get really cool traffic-free french chat tracks so you know there's two or three french sound editors and sound designers in the sound collectors club so just get straight in touch with them um one guy was able to sort of go out and record a load of stuff for me, which he's kindly since then contributed to the club and shared in the appropriate themes. And then another guy basically hooked me up with a load of top sound editors in France, basically, just to try and get these, you know, the correct sounds. So it's just become a really good overlap between what I do online and the relationships I've got there and to my sound supervising work.
1: You and I actually almost got together on something too for, I think, one of the X Men films.
0: Uh, no, yours one was Gambit. It was Gambit. Ta- the Texas stuff in Gambit. I really yeah. wanted to get your, uh, I wanted to do the crowd with you. There's
1: an actual thing that they do here at the Texas State Fair that I've witnessed where monkeys ride dogs as, as a rodeo.
0: <laughs> they do it. I That'd swear. be a cool phone call, wouldn't it? If I, <laughs> I scratched you, Renee. Like, uh, Renee, got any sound of a monkey on a dog? And I was you like, oh, I've seen one that? of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you were going to get um, stuff from the State Fair from us, weren't you? But it had music all over. They had
1: The problem with the State Fair these days in Texas, the Texas State Fair is like any other public event. They got speakers everywhere and they're cranking music everywhere. And so it's really, really hard to get a good natural ambience. Yeah. I do have some recordings that I made that day when I did go out and scout. And it's got really good kind of midway carnival barkers going on.
2: Come on, we
3: need
2: some water gun
1: racers.
0: Daddy, you can sit down. You don't got to stand up. Sit down there, big daddy.
1: It's not like we're running a house. But I don't think it would be safe to use in films because it does have, you know, some Britney Spears or whatever going on in the background because all of those rides have music cranking as hard as they can go. It's a real shame that that environment isn't there anymore the way that it used to be.
2: Yeah.
0: Know? yeah.
2: Guys, before we go too deep into the Sound Collectors Club, maybe we should do a quick description of what it is for anyone who is not familiar with it.
0: Right. Well, the best way to describe it is it came from Tim Preble, basically. Uh, he, as you, you guys will know, started a crowdsourced library for Doors, was the first one, I think, wasn't it? Um, yep. A year or two back now? And it was just a really cool idea, and the I didn't actually I missed it. Annoyingly, I was away on holiday at the time, so I missed out on it. So I never got hold of a copy. But
1: oh, you missed something huge, man! That doors library is great. I know,
0: but it was literally it sounded absolutely massive. So I was very impressed with that idea. But one thing that didn't appeal was the amount of database entry and just organising of all that vast amount of material. So. I can't remember exactly how it went from that to doing the Sound Collector's Club, but I just liked that idea, but I I wanted to avoid all the admin side of it. And at the same time, I was doing a lot more uh, sound effects back then as well, and I used to dip into, I think I was doing sound effects on Kick-Ass, actually, and wanted to get a few extra New York sound effects. And I'd used Michael Raphael to get some sounds for us, but I also dipped into SoundSnap, which is an online library. And it wasn't like definitive collections of sounds and stuff, but there were some really cool recorders on there who, you know, all over the world. And it was just a really nice little top-up occasionally, just when you needed a new sound of, like, something from different places. And I liked that idea as well. And so I kind of put the two together in terms of just having this, you know, cloud library that everyone could share. And just, you know, you just, all you had to do was contribute one sound to get access to a particular collection, like Rain or street voices or something like that. And then you'd get by contributing one sound, you could get access to everyone else's. So just massively multiplying your library just from a small amount of, of your own contribution. So we started off on SoundCloud, which was seemed the way to go at the time. But that was very expensive and it was very stuck online. And immediately after a very short period of time the library'd grown to the size that it already it was becoming a hassle downloading stuff whenever you wanted to actually bring it onto your own computer. But a load of the cloud apps had been developing in the meantime, and so I jumped onto an app called SugarSync, which was the same sort of online sharing idea, but it actually sticks it on your desktop. It's like another version of Dropbox. Yeah, exactly. But comparing the different ones, Dropbox was just too expensive, and everyone had to pay for the amount of memory, basically, to have it on their desktop. Whereas the good thing about SugarSync is I just pay once, and then everyone can actually share that from that right. central part but still have it on their own computer if they want to. So it started from there and it started off as free because it was just like literally the smallest SoundCloud account but then it grew and I needed to sort of buy memory space on SoundCloud so after a few months set it up as a £20 membership fee just to cover the costs of that and it's taken off from there. We do one theme a month, we pick a different topic to try and attack, try and have a bit of conversation about it. I'll throw. I'll start off with my ideas on what makes a good sound for, like, rain or car passes or whatever and we, you know, have a chat about it and share sounds and just build up our our library and over time we've built up a fair old collection of different themes. I haven't actually checked for a little while but I think we're up to about 40, 45 gig or something now of, of sounds we've got together. And that's been over two years, I think now we've been doing it, yeah, so um but it's cool the the exciting thing about it is it started off as free and it started off as covering costs and we're still kind of at that stage of just like kind of just about break even. I think maybe I'm a little bit out of pocket, but getting to the stage of breaking even on it, but it's quite exciting that if as it grows. Actually, there's a bit of money in the part. Then it's fun thinking of ideas about how I could funnel that back into the club in terms of already, like, for those who follow the club, we did a Floor Creeks meet-up um, in London, and it cost about £40 just to hire this really old museum. It's like it's called Handel House Museum. And just had to obviously give them a bit of money for their time sort of thing. So it's quite cool to start thinking, oh, I'll take that out of the kitty, because I you know, had a few new memberships come on board that month. So, you know, there's a little bit maybe spare... And in the future, you know, if it does make a bit more actually organising meetups abroad or, you know, because it's obviously all spread across the world, then it'd be really cool to actually use those funds if there is excess to organisers all doing, not all of us, obviously, we're like the top three or four contributors, maybe, do like a night away or a special recording trip in that way. So it's quite cool in that way. You guys got some
1: killer sounds in that house. I was very happy to have had some floor recordings that I could contribute so that I could get my hands on the stuff that you guys recorded.
0: Oh, it's great. But I just, I think that's really cool in that way. It's just, you know, sometimes the themes are quite simple things that you can just grab quickly in your own home. But with some of them, there's quite good. What's cool about doing the meetups we do is we try and attack like a big thing. Like at the moment, we've done City Skylines and I'd love to try and get in uh, the BT Towers a big, tall tower in London. Yeah you know you get really sort of special sounds in that way but uh no it's cool it's going well it's sort of um i'm so busy with my own work at the moment it's sort of hard sometimes to uh give it as much attention as i'd love to but uh it sort of ticks along nicely that's the good thing about it it's not a high pressure thing like you've got to do it you know you otherwise you you know you're not a member if you don't contribute every month and you end up falling behind and it becomes like another workload thing it's not it's there if you get busy for a few months you know obviously take a break but yeah, keep an eye on the themes and see if, you know if opportunities come along. Grab stands when you can, and then just upload a load of stuff in one go, or do it as you go, whatever suits you. And it's you know still here when you come back. So, um, how much time do you spend administering it? Um, like on a monthly basis? To start with, it it was quite a lot, but I've got a bit better at automating some of the process, uh, and I've sort of messed around with other there's been new apps and stuff come on and I'll add a little feature to the website and I just, six months to a year ago, I just started thinking, just strip it back, keep it the core thing of just collecting sounds, don't bother with extra details and stuff because it can just snowball into this big job. And now I've just literally got it down to, a sound turns up in one of the personal folders, I check it, I bought Snapper, so it was really quick to just do a 10 second quick MP3 of it, upload that to SoundCloud. I still use SoundCloud for like the demos that non-members can hear what's in in the folders in the website. And that's about it. And it does an automatic tweet. when well, As soon as I load it to SoundCloud, I use, um, what was it called, If This Then That. So have you seen that IFTT? So no. It's, it, it does like an automatic trigger. You can do this anyway on SoundCloud, but it's not quite as neat as If This Then That. And as soon as I add a track to SoundCloud, it automatically sends out a tweet to people who follow it can see that there's a new thing uploaded. So, And that's about it, really. But then apart from that, just setting up a new thing.
1: Yeah, I pretty much rely on those tweets. I mean, the way that I can tell that something new is up is by checking the Sound Collectors Club Twitter account. Because as a member, as someone that does contribute, you have to pull it off of the shared folder and into your hard drive, onto your sound effects drive or whatever, and then integrate it into your library. So there's a step that happens on the end user end also. And the way that I personally kind of keep track of what I have in my library versus what's still sitting there waiting for me
0: is by checking out that Twitter account. Oh, that's good to know. But have you, what about notifications from SugarSync? Because do you not get an email notification?
1: Um, I haven't lately. I may need to just check my settings again because I was doing that as well.
0: Because the other thing that's come up recently is um, there's a new version of SugarSync. I think it's still in beta. But Sugar Sink has been on the verge of being a little bit of a pain for the club because it's got slight restrictions on editing controls. So you add stuff to these folders, but to enable everyone to have it on their computer, I have to allow them to be able to edit it, which is fine most of the time, but because everyone's got their own unique setup about, you know, they may copy it from it or they may edit it straight from it, inevitably stuff ends up getting changed and you have to... It's very easy to put back, but it's just a bit fiddly. But they brought out a new beta version which I think makes it a bit more like Google Drive, where you you can see it as like a drive, but it's not actually on your desktop. So you could still, if you're doing it like the way you say, René, you drag a copy to your your effects drive, but it's not using up disk space on your computer. Oh, you can't edit it, right? So in other words it it stops you can it stops you editing it exactly yeah because i definitely hosed a whole bunch of
1: files doing that once
0: (laughs) i know it's so easy to do and it was a real thing and it was getting to the point where i was thinking we're gonna have to bail out of sugar sync and i don't know i was looking at google drive and things like that but i think this new beta is going to solve the problem in a a way i'm going to sort of send out emails to all the members and see if they're up for uh doing it that way but yeah that could be cool but the other thing about it is it shows recent activity as well yeah. So just on the app, like the SugarSync file manager, you can just look on that and see recent activity and go back as far as the last time you dragged stuff onto your FX drive. But. So how big is the membership right now? We have got, it's about 45 people, I think. That's great. Yeah, it's a nice number. That's the thing, it's just like I've sort of said to you guys before, um, I don't really do a hard sell on it. Do you get about 60% on any given theme, or
1: how many? what percentage of the membership contributes to any given theme? Because I know there's some that I miss. Oh,
0: it's 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 really random. It's, a lot of people a lot of people have paid membership and they never contribute all year. It's really weird. Um <laughs> I don't really understand the <laughs> point of that, but it's cool. It's you know, because it helps sort of pay the costs of it and stuff. But I I don't really understand that because the whole fun of it would be obviously getting involved Because obviously you don't get to use all these sounds unless you contribute. You just end up looking at the website, you know, the ten second samples. But you only get access to what you actually you know, the themes you contribute to. So the more you get involved the more you get back yeah it's it all sort of goes through fits and spurts and sometimes it will be quiet month but that's the whole thing about it it doesn't really matter you know a lot of people uh, who use it are professional sound guys uh, and obviously like myself get very busy so you you know you're not hear from someone for like 2 or 3 months and then they'll lo- download i don't know five or six sounds and just cross a whole load of different themes and it's cool in that way, and it's it's fine for me. I'm sort of happy with it ticking along in that way as well, because
1: that's definitely how I end up working.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's it, but if, if a lot of people have maybe have a bit more time on their hands and contribute once, you know, twice a month, and that's cool as well. So uh, it just sort of fits everyone's busy schedules in that way but but all the time it's gathering momentum and it's getting bigger and bigger and it started off as you know just a couple of gig and we're getting up to nearly 50 gig now and it becomes more and more of a useful resource i think yeah but the mad thing about it is that when i started it i was started it as a sound effects editor that's what i was mainly doing back then it's taken on a life of its own as being this resource like i was mentioning before about when the sound supervising and hooked up with these guys in in france it's just taken on its own life in terms of, it's a really good chance for people to network and hear people's work from around the world. Um, Tim posted a really cool article the other day talking about the club uh, and it just absolutely hit the nail on the head about the opportunities it offers in terms of if you're looking for you know sound effects from another country, you kind of got an online audition of what they do and you can tell so much about you know the quality of someone's work from a few sounds they've recorded and just get an idea that they know what they're doing and it's really cool in that way. Yeah, you got some guys in Brazil
1: that are just amazing.
0: Yeah, and there's one in Argentina. Do you remember the yeah. one in Argentina? That's such, it was I think that was the night and day theme. Yeah. Um, and it was like frogs and stuff. It's just like it's so cool.
1: Oh, that's still one of the most useful themes. That was the very first one you did. And I still dive into all those sounds that everyone recorded on a regular basis as I'm cutting BGFX for things.
0: Yeah, because that was the part of the thing. Like I said, with the sound snap thing, it wasn't about. I can't imagine doing something like, I don't know, guns, or if we did cars, then it wouldn't be like get every single sound and do like a sort of, you know, definitive sound ideas compilation of a car. So you've got it for everything. It's about top up sounds. It's about. You know, like car passes are really because you know it's just really cool to have like some new car passes to work with and it's useful to have them from all around the world because obviously it sounds so different and I kind of do bear that in mind in terms of the themes I choose that they're just themes that are useful to have top-up sounds for
2: yeah what is the process that goes into picking the different themes um, sometimes
0: I'll have I'll go through a phase of I'll pick a few that I think are good topics but then uh, you know, just through conversations with members, I'll end up getting suggestions. And whenever I do get suggestions, I always try and do them unless I think they sort of really double up with something else that's going on. And occasionally I get into really cool conversations with people who have got an actual series coming up or a film coming up, and they know they're going to need a type of a particular sound. Uh, and then they'll ask, like, "Can we do a theme for that?" And um, one of my favourite ones like that was um, the trains design theme, which yeah. uh, a guy called Rich Spooner in New York who does um, kids. TV animation Chuggington uh, and for anyone who doesn't have kids and doesn't know about this is all about trains and just animated train characters basically and yeah he said can you do a train design thing for that so that you know I can get a load of fresh material for it and um, it, that's one of the biggest collections actually is trains design we've got loads of sounds in that really cool stuff steam trains modern trains Oh, Yeah, Renee, you did your they tra- were they trams?
1: Yeah, it's the uh, the public transit that I've recorded a fair amount of them. put, I think, I put in there.
0: Yeah, that's the that tended to a big collection, and um, which he used a lot of those sounds on uh, that series. He said, I keep meaning to um, do a proper interview with him about you know what he used and how he used it, kind of thing. So, yeah. it can be really cool in that way, you know, anyone who's got a situation like that where they've got a project coming up they want to boost their library for, then feel free to give us a shout and I'll do that. Because I love that idea of it having a professional purpose. It's not just like a little hobbyist thing. It's helping us out
2: complete projects and spice up track lays. So Yeah, that's one of the things that I love so much about the club is there is a social aspect to it. When you're listening to these sounds, you can learn from what how other people have recorded essentially the same type of sound that you recorded. And you can actually learn from listening to how other people are doing things, which is something that I really enjoy about it. And the other thing that you were mentioning earlier about networking, it also works for less experienced people because I feel like if I was looking to hire an assistant sound editor and I was interviewing people and one of the sound editors was in the sound club and I already had sounds that they'd recorded in my library... That would set them apart from everyone else who I was talking to so much, because immediately it shows that they know how to go out and record things, it shows that they know how to tag stuff with metadata, do basic file management, and just that they have the get up and go to put themselves out in the world and interact with other professional recordists. And I feel like that is something that people aren't maybe realizing as much, is just the whole social aspect of the club and the way that it can help you professionally in both learning how to record by hearing how other people are doing similar topics or subjects of different themes and also just interacting with other professionals
1: yeah i definitely find when i'm going through sounds that come from the club you start to know the guys that are really good yeah and you start to really be able to just be like oh yeah he recorded one that's awesome i can't wait to hear it you know yeah I, and I'm always trying to put myself in that echelon. Also, I'm always trying to record the types of sounds that the other members of the club are looking forward to hearing.
2: You know, yeah, it forces you to up your game because yeah. you don't want to be the weak link in each theme. You want yeah. to be able to be uh, on par with everyone else.
0: Yeah, and not just in terms of sound quality, you know, and you know, mic technique and stuff, but just in terms of like rarity of like or exactly. like, really difficult to get sound. It's just that's part of the challenge in a way. I think so. Yeah, yeah, it's cool in that way. So
1: I have very high hopes for your current theme, which is city skylines. I went out yesterday and, you know, I live in Dallas. And so I went straight downtown Dallas at about 10 a.m. on a Saturday and paid the parking garage fee and got up on the top of a 15 story parking garage and rolled 15 minutes in one direction aimed at the highway. and 15 minutes in another direction aimed at the big buildings downtown. And got some really good stuff. And then I came back and I found another spot like right by where I work where there's about a mile and a half of field of just empty grass between where I work and a big highway. And so it sounds a lot like when you're on top of a building. So I got 15 minutes there also. Cool. And I was working on a show very recently where I would have loved to have already had those sounds recorded. There's no excuse not to, right? I mean, you just put yourself in that place and set the mics up and roll. But for the purposes of television and documentary work and that type of stuff, those types of BGFX recordings from around the world are going to be super useful, I think.
2: For sure. I'm a big fan of the current theme as well, except for the time of the year that you picked to do it because standing outside on the top of a building here in December. That's what you get for living in Canada. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh yeah, I know. On Twitter the other day, I mentioned about we'd, um, we should all meet up for uh, we have another UK meet up, and we, I was sort of doing a bit of research on sort of good high points in London to get a sort of good skyline recording. So we're potentially meeting up around an area called Hampstead next week, and just like after thinking about it, I was just like, oh, in December? Do I really want to go and stand <laughs> on Hampstead Heath? And like, you know, especially as it's getting dark about like four o'clock in the afternoon at the moment. It's just like. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we should have left that for the summer. But yeah, the important no, thing no, to no, note... Though,
1: but the thing is, winter is the best time to be outside yeah. for recording. The winter months are the best yeah. sounding months of, of the whole year because there's no insects and the air yeah. is colder and the sound travels further and faster. And it's just, I I hate the cold. I hate the cold. I hate the cold. I hate the cold. <laughs> the cold. That's why I live in Texas. But <laughs> but I can't help but get out there and record when it gets cold because it sounds
0: so beautiful outside. yeah. But that's an important point to make, actually. From as uh, a bit of a hangover from when we first started the club, and as uh, as you guys remember, it started off on SoundCloud that it was a theme for the month, and then in order because we only had a small SoundCloud account and it was all everyone it was free for everyone. I had to take all that stuff down. So you had that month to grab it and get involved, and if not, you missed it and it was gone. And really quickly, we sort of realized that it was much better if we could just keep building those libraries online. So consequently, although we sort of used the month as a measuring point for like yeah let's uh, chuck a new topic in there it's not like that's closed and you can go you can contribute to any of the themes that you see on the website now and you know if there's just something that's you fancy having a go at at that particular point you can contribute to old themes they're all still active so uh,
2: yeah I just recorded uh, some floor squeaks just two days ago. I haven't had a chance to put them up yet, but that theme is probably a year old now, but I hadn't found the right spot to do it with yet. Yeah. But now that I have, so now I'm going to be getting be able to get, take part in that, which is great, where the original version, I would have just missed it entirely.
0: Floor Squeaks was a cool one. It was really interesting because um, one of the things that I sussed out from the Handel House meetup is how some of it is kind of like useful in a foley context and you know in a, you could imagine doing a period drama and it, you know we recorded stuff quite uh, wide and then other stuff is like so creaky that you can imagine it as like sound design on like a horror film and. It was a really interesting crossover that that kind of pot of sounds is going to be useful in very different ways, I think.
1: Yeah. You know, and actually, I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, because my contribution to that specific library was some stuff that I had recorded on vacation the year prior. It was out in New Mexico. And so it was a location that I didn't have access to unless I was going to get in the car and drive another 10 hours. So I pulled a sound that I recorded, but it was from my personal back catalog and contributed it to that specific one. Cause that was the best floor recording. I knew I could get happening. And I know generally the idea of the club is to see a theme and grab your mics and go out and record something. What are your thoughts on going into your own personal recordings in order to contribute?
0: I do both. So um yeah. I think you know like we were talking about before I don't want to create deadlines and workloads for people so you know if you're really busy at the time and you don't have the opportunity to go and record a particular sound but like a month or two before you got this amazing thing then obviously it's it's sort of self-defeating to go oh no you mustn't use that you've got to do a new sound it's about the collecting as well as the actual act of going out and doing sound recording but obviously you know it's a balance it's you know if i only contributed old sounds from my library then it's kind of defeating the point of like you're saying it's a trigger to get out there and chase a theme in a way so um but i certainly don't think it's a big no-no that no it must be all new sounds, because I don't do that myself.
1: Because I know one of your requirements tends to be that you want to hear a voice, like you want to hear us, you know, basically say our names on the recording so that you can verify that it's us, right? So that you
0: Yeah, know. although that's kind of changing a little bit, that because that was once again a sort of uh, requirement based on SoundCloud and the way we had to cheat SoundCloud, because SoundCloud is so set up for, like, share everything with everyone. And SoundCollector Club, it isn't about that. It's about private sharing, which I'm a kind of big fan of. Like, I love sharing ideas and things, but I quite like this idea of you put in and you get out agreed yeah it's not just like you know you can be a passive thing and just sort of take 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 it's like this whole sort of giving economy idea so it was partly to do with the limitations we had to do this cheat to be able to load stuff up onto soundcloud but it'd be in the sound collectors club account and the way it happened made me totally responsible for everything and there was no way of attributing that to someone so if someone else. You know, accidentally uploaded something that wasn't their property and it was a problem and stuff, there was no way of attributing it back to them. So it kind of had this make-do idea of, well, at least put your voice on it, You know, link yourself to that sound in a way, to so sort of take responsibility for it. Uh, so that was kind of a hangover from that as well, which is not an issue now, because with SugarSync, when you upload, it says it's come from your email address, basically. So there's that there's that attribution element taken right. care of. So I'm going to do a post saying you don't have to anymore, and loads of people have done it recently anyway, not added their name on but i kind of like it to be honest i do too yeah I, I leave the slates on in my library it's just like sort of saying hi guys i've done this check it out kind of thing and <laughs> i do when i course stuff i do vocal slates anyway just because they're handy sometimes so i'm sort of happy for people keep doing that but if you hadn't, haven't had the opportunity sometimes it's not always practical obviously you know it's fine but yeah it's cool to put a verbal slate on if you can
1: you know why I like them is because people tend to also describe their setup, yeah, and in you know probably half the cases, the metadata is not thoroughly filled out, which is fine because you know, even when I purchase like commercial libraries, I always pull them in and mess with the metadata before they go into my library. So I'm always looking at the metadata of the stuff that I'm pulling from that also. And so it's nice sometimes to hear the voice slate because people will describe their microphone setups. And I've been trying to do that as well too, with the stuff that I contribute. I'll say, hey, this is where I'm at, where I am, this is what I'm looking at, these are the mics that I'm using, and I'll put that all in the voice slate in addition to filling the metadata out. I find that useful. Okay, this is Rene Coronado for the Sound Collectors Club City Skylines. I'm at the top of the Elm Street parking garage. It's about a 12 story parking garage right in the middle of downtown Dallas. Two line audio CM3s in my modified ORTF setup on the corner of the parking garage aimed at a major highway. Uh, Highway is maybe half a mile away. Pretty clear from the buildings though. Um, Not aimed at the buildings. And uh, it's about 10.30 on a Saturday morning.
0: It's really interesting you're saying about mic setups, because as a lot of people know from your post, you do some really cool mic setups and you're doing a lot of quad recording. But one of the cool things about the club also is like particularly in themes like street voices a lot of the spontaneous recordings you can get which are often on always encourage the best quality you can get but there's quite a lot of h four zoom h four stuff on there sure. which if you'd had the perfect setup and you just wouldn't have got there was one I got when I was uh in a short break in the south of France and there were a load of Drunk kids outside the hotel. Oh I yeah, I remember that one. that one. was good. And there was the best shout and the the sound effects editor on this latest French period film nicked a few bits for that because they were French kids. And it's just like, yeah, you know, I'm not saying Zoom H4 is the greatest sounding thing, but it's just if you catch those really cool sounds, then um, that's what the club's good for as well, is those rare, difficult to get sounds in a way. So, talk a little bit about
1: usage, you know, for people that haven't signed up to the club and want to know about what they can and can't do with those sounds. You did handle the legal aspect of it. Yeah,
0: I just did a lot of research on it, basically. Um, Sussed out other people's contracts, you know, what were the do's and don'ts. And. (laughs) <laughs> unlike some people didn't just completely rip off those, uh, contracts, but, uh, uh, you know, just get the gist of them and then put it in your own words. And as anyone who looks at the legal side of mine it is, you know, is not written out by a lawyer. It is worded quite informally, but it's plain English. And I think that sort of crosses the T's and dots the I's basically. So
2: we should mention, we've said, referred to the website about 20 times, but never actually said it. It's the sound collectors club.com.
1: So so tell me about the general things that somebody that joining the club could use the sounds for versus what they could not use the sounds for.
0: The basic idea is I mean this is spelled out properly on on the website obviously. The basic thing is the same as any sound ideas library or anything like that is that you can use them on whatever you like um as many times as you like but you just can't resell those sounds you know individually or in in any kind of format. It's the usual kind of thing. So it's just The legal side of it on the website is just spelling out that situation is that you cannot download all this stuff and then sell it as a live, but You have to use it on commercial projects.
1: Yeah. And so you're totally free to put them on TV spots and film work and video games and any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Which is different from the Creative Commons license.
0: Yeah. See, that's the thing. I have to be careful when we were using SoundCloud because SoundCloud defaults to Creative Commons and when I was checking it out back then, it was based on attribution, and anyone who works on any kind of film or television program knows the amount of sound effects you use. That's just completely impractical. You can't. Um, you can't document. You can't. Credit everything. Yeah, sometimes you yeah. can be the editor on certain TV programs, and you're lucky if you get a credit. Let alone the guy who gave you one sound effect or something. So that's just not going to happen. So that was really important as well. That part of the legal was talking to the contributor and saying, by contributing this, you're you're saying people who. Also contribute to the same theme, can access this and use it on their commercial products, but not sell it. And then the other half was to the user saying the same thing. So uh, that's kind of the gist of that. It's just spelling that out so there's no misunderstandings.
1: Yeah. So as a recordist, it's similar to Creative Commons, except don't expect credit.
0: Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the things that would be cool to talk about, this is why I was so impressed with Tim's post the other day, is he just absolutely nailed a lot of the things I'm thinking about regarding the club and where I want to go with it. So Tim, for people that aren't
2: looking at the internet right now, what was your blog post kind of about? What was the gist of it? Uh, the gist of it was that essentially when the Sound Collectors Club first came out, there was kind of a wave of enthusiasm and uh, there was a lot of talk of it on Twitter. But in the last little bit, it's kind of died down a bit and I was just trying to say to people that if we want to keep this great resource alive and available to us all, Michael's done all the work to figure out, like, legally how it'll work and the background on the servers, how it will work. But if we want it to really work, we all who use it have to take responsibility for keeping it alive and getting new people involved because the more people use it, obviously the better it gets. And uh, I just went through a couple lists of all the great things about it and how it can be helpful, like we talked about with networking both if you're a new person in sound design or if you're an established person that needs sounds from somewhere else and then also just a list of things that we can all do to try and reinvigorate it and make sure people know that it's still out there and uh, one of the things that I had mentioned was as Michael's been talking about with the uh, place where they went to get the floor squeaks was Uh, members in other places than London organizing meetups where because I know there's a few from Canada and specifically Toronto that contribute and uh, I was thinking that maybe I could take the lead and organize something here and internationally if other people can get together it's just something that uh, I feel like if we want this tool to remain as great as it can be we have to contribute more than just sounds we got to put a little energy into keeping it alive and vital
0: yeah, because exactly like that, like Tim, you obviously have a great blog and probably have more people following you than me, and you could easily go and do something like that and just do about it on your own website. But by shouting, echoing back to the Sound Collectors Club, it can inspire action from other people, which you then benefit from. Do you know what I mean? It's just um, yeah. because you're sharing the same sounds in that way. So I find that that idea really exciting and much more... Uh, it may be more of a slow burner, but it's much more longer-lasting if it's that word of mouth and mutually beneficial idea, rather than me just creating loads of content and getting you know regular posts on the blog and trying to come up with gimmicks and stuff like that, because that may boost things for a little bit, but first off, I don't have time to do that, and secondly, the minute I stop doing it, it falls away. Whereas it, I think we just keep chatting about it. We all chat to each other anyway, so just sort of spreading the word about it. It just slow grower, and it just becomes more and more of a useful tool that just sort of stays along, you know, hangs around in the background for us whenever we need it.
1: I tell you, my thought on it is that I agree that it shouldn't be a hard sell to you know a bunch of people for a couple of reasons. One, say you did a really hard push and said, hey, man, everybody jump on this. I think the quality of what's getting put up there right now would go down. If it's more about people that are doing it because they love it and that kind of would do it anyway, Yeah, I think that keeps the quality of what it's doing up. I also think that that nominal little entry fee serves the same purpose yeah i agree you know 30 us dollars is a whole bunch of nothing compared to the actual sounds you get back out of it but it's enough to deter people that would potentially you know abuse it or just kind of put a bunch of crap up there whatever i know that when i'm handling my music library the big big aggregate libraries that really bother me are the ones that will go purchase these crap back catalogs and send me this hard drive with a bunch of unusable music. Yeah.
2: This is stock music you're referring to.
1: Yeah. So when I'm dealing with stock music and I'm dealing with libraries that are, instead of investing their resources and creating a whole bunch of new, hip, awesome, cool sounding stuff, they're investing their resources in buying a bunch of back catalog. You know, it, it wastes my time when I get that drive full of their stuff. And I think the Sound Collectors Club does a really good job of not wasting my time when I get new sounds that come in. I'm excited to see the sounds that come in because I think the level of quality is up. And so to that end, when we talk about what we're doing with it, my personal perspective is to participate and participate at the highest level that I can and do good work. And when I talk about it, I don't talk about what the club is and what all the benefits are and how cool it is what i talk about is how much i enjoy participating in it and my cool adventures that i get to go do when i'm recording the city skylines or whatever you know i talk about my own personal contribution and but i put it in that context and i think that's more real and i feel like that's more effective and i feel like that's more sustainable yeah and i think if the members of the club you know and talk about their own recording exploits as those things get framed by the club i think that's one of the better ways to grow it and grow it in a good positive way
2: yeah people will take uh, your opinion on something more from a personal perspective than a general perspective so yeah. but that was one of the things i mentioned in it is that like uh, write blog posts about how you recorded your sound and yeah people definitely read about that and then come into it through that experience
0: or even as little as what you did the other day renee of just posting that the photo it's just content, you know, it's just, I love, that's why I started tweeting whenever there was stuff going into the pot, as it were, is just to show there's, there's activity there and just anything, you know, if you go into the bother of going out and recording stuff like you did the other day, Renee, then it's just cool to create that content and just show, yeah, I'm getting this, I'm getting that and not, it's not just about the sounds because I, I don't want to sort of nick people's content. I don't want to start sort of trying to make everyone guest editors on, 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 the main website, but you know, for instance, like Tim, you post the other day, I'd obviously love to like link to that on the website and just show that there's these people, you know, even if they you do it on your own website, do it on your own Twitter account, or just email me a bunch of pics and a little bit of blurb and I'll put it on the website if you want, if you don't have your own blog. But it's just about creating that sense of activity, which is there, you know, there's lots of stuff going on. It's just all being aware of it. Yeah.
1: I think it's fun to record for other people. You know what I mean? Mm. So much of what I record is for myself and for my work and for what I do. And I think it's fun to have a low-key, no-pressure project to record just a pure audio geekery recording that you're sharing with other people that can appreciate it. And that's what I get excited about. You know, when I'm posting those pictures, I'm like, hey, guys, check this out. Because those of you that are in this club, you're going to get it. It's going to be cool. That's the
0: thing. My involvement in it has changed so much in terms of when I started it. It was for collecting it for myself to use it in my own, whether TV programs or films. But now because I'm focusing on dialogue editing, I'm not needing sound effects collections per se. Although if you know, when supervising, I'm still sort of helping source those sounds. But as a supervising sound editor, I'm looking for effects editors and effects recorders and stuff. And it's just like this amazing resource of people all around the world. So apart from the Far East... I feel like I could pretty much get any sound I wanted from around the world. We haven't really sort of broken into Russia and the Far East much. There's, I don't think we've got any yeah, members there. I'm surprised
1: there. we're not in Russia, honestly.
0: Yeah. But yeah, that side um, of it's really cool, I think. And it seems to happen on project after project, where you sort of say to the sound team you're working with, oh yeah, I know someone there, or oh, I can check out something like that. And it's always a bit like, oh wow, yeah, yeah, it's quite cool. You can source pretty much any sound you want from anywhere in the world. So, Do you feel like there would ever be a point of
1: diminishing returns? Do you feel like there would ever be a point where your membership is so high that it would be more of a pain to go through the sounds that you're getting back than it'd be worth?
0: Oh, if it gets to that point, it will, I'd have to change the shape of it. I've already thought, you know, like, if, for instance, on this job, I just finished sound supervising. It was based in Hungary, so it was like foreign travel, and it was just crazy busy. Already it crossed my mind that I need to set up a contingency plan for if I'm not able to sort of focus on it, then having something work in that situation. But if incoming contributions start absolutely rocketing, then I just need to adjust it, basically, you know, automate it to a certain extent or just get more people involved in it. And I don't think that would be hard considering how cool so many of the people involved in it are. It would just, I would just I'll see it as a community sort of project in that way, so it's not something I want to sort of cling on to in terms of, uh, oh, no, I must do everything, so... Yeah, not at that point yet, so I haven't got any concrete ideas. It's sort of ticking along quite nicely at the moment. But if it's sort of snowballed, then yeah, just like anything, you have to adapt and adjust. But I wouldn't see that being a problem. It's quite easy to scale it, I think. That's great. Oh, and the other cool thing about SugarSync in that way is, in contrast to SoundCloud, is whenever new members join, we get more space. That's right, yeah, it self-scales. And so I've bought a standard amount of space, and you get like 500 meg every time a new person joins. So the space on Account has not doubled, but it's gone up a lot, yeah, and obviously will continue to. So that's quite a cool thing in a way that that's pretty scalable as well. But that would be cool, though. You imagine if it really rocketed and there was just like hundreds of gigs. Well, that's the thought, right? What
1: if you have 500 members and you got about 60 or 70 percent contribution rate? <laughs> quit, you put a
0: theme on my day job, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just spend my day creating 10 second mp3 samples, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I might have to rethink that one, I think, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to outsource it to China or something like that, I think. And then as
1: a contributor, you've got sugar sync trying to chuck, you know, four gigs of files down or whatever. I
0: know, I know. It sort of crash their servers.
1: Yeah, I think it's in a place where it could probably, it's definitely got headroom, right? Yeah. You could probably come up, double or triple it before it started getting
0: unwieldy. hmm Yeah. I mean, maybe it's that whole sort of, I mean, I haven't really thought about it, This, but just off the top of my head, that whole kind of Wikipedia idea of it becomes self-editing in a way. Do you know what I mean? That it sort of controls itself. And I think it would have to become a bit like that. Because the cool thing about it is that even when mistakes have happened in editing, things have got deleted, it's really easily recoverable. That's true. Yeah, it keeps a backup. Yeah. I get an email saying exactly what has happened. Like, (laughs) this idiot has just gone and deleted it, basically. But uh, so that would be quite (laughs) controllable. So maybe that's the future of it in a way, that it becomes sort of self-controlling in that way and self-editing. And I just sort of keep an eye on the the shape of it and um, maybe approve a few people to actually do the signing off sounds and stuff. Do you know what I mean? Because it needs to be some... You do that? You actually listen to every sound and and approve it before you distribute it Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't happen often, but I have turned down a few. Just like, it's not often... Because it's like a bad recording, it's normally just that it doesn't quite fit the box in terms of the theme, or it's quite often there's too many layers. Like, as... Say, for instance, just off the top of my head, like a bird theme, but there's, like, too much traffic in it. And you know that if you come to use it in a professional context, it just wouldn't be usable because there's too much background. So it would be, like, a roar coming in and out. Just different things like that. So I have sort of turned down a, a couple. I think, it's for instance, with the cafe theme, I turned down one or two because they were basically bar or pub chats. And I know we'll probably do that in the future. So you have to be quite strict about, no, let's keep that right. as that particular thing. And I keep, like, a little folder for... Future things, I'll say to the person, like I'll put this aside because we're bound to do that theme in the future. So things like that, just to keep some sort of control of it. Otherwise, it does become a bit of a mess. Right. And I don't want those sort of sounds in there that you just never use. Do you know what I mean? The ones that you just, uh, I'm not, I'm never going to use that, but it just sits there in the folder. You might as well just spring clean. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I got to say that the quality of what comes down the pipe is always great, and um, that speaks to both the recorders and that speaks to your ability to
0: kind of organize and edit that. No, it's cool. Like I said, it's mainly the recorders. I'd turn away a minimal amount of tracks. There's the interesting balance, especially when this first started. It had a real, maybe I was being paranoid, but sometimes got the impression that it was seen as a bit of a sort of hobbyist thing and newbies. They have just a bunch of guys with H4s, you know, just going out and recording stuff. And I don't see it as that at all. I see there's loads of useful stuff. And there is some H4 stuff in there, but it's like I I was saying earlier, that it's stuff that you know even a top recordist would probably do on an h4 because it would just be something they got spontaneously it's not because yeah you know it's sort of making do in that way there is real quality stuff on there
1: to some degree the dealing with the quality level and i don't want to speak for tim preble but the impression that i got from him because he i think he had high hopes for a lot of the crowdsourcing things and he set up a lot of infrastructure with regards to doing some of that And then eventually he kind of had to pull the plug on it. And I think the obstacle that he was running into was the amount of time effort it takes to get all of these recordings from all of these different people with all these different skill sets and tool sets up to a certain level. You know? Yeah, yeah, Because he literally did. He was at scale. I mean, that Doors library was hundreds of recordists. So he started out already way up at scale. And so that's definitely something I think in the future to to at least be aware of. I think the current concept is really, really good, and I think it's very, very sustainable. And I also think that that's what that thirty dollar theme does because you didn't have to pay to contribute to Tim's library either, and that's why he was able to scale it up so fast mm. because he's got he' got a massive, a massive following as well yeah, massive following, right So you know you know he puts his word out and everyone jumps.
0: Um, I did. Yeah, I was caught napping on that one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, But if there was a minor money barrier there, I bet maybe 30 or 40% of the people that contributed wouldn't have, and he probably would have had less of a time issue because those people would tend to be the beginners and, and the hobbyists. I know that he kind of had to deal with because he talked about that a little bit in some of his blog posts. I haven't spoken to him personally about it, but the biggest challenge of crowdsourcing I think
0: is that element right there. I, it's interesting you saying that though. It sort of struck me then. I wonder how different the club would have been turning out, especially early doors, when if I'd had anywhere near the kind of following that Tim has. Because my people getting involved tend to be people I've been in contact through you know blogging and various reasons. So it's word of mouth spread like that rather than my yeah big following in a way. So although that's been a disadvantage, I mean maybe maybe this in some ways some advantage that it is actually sort of people that i've sort of become friends with and them spreading word of mouth in that way but yeah yep. it's enough to keep me busy at the moment so it's cool
2: cool well let's move on to news okay excellent we got a couple things for news and we're just going to start out with uh, paul verostek who is the guest on the previous episode episode four we talked a bit about his book field recording from research to rap and it has just come out in paperback form that you can get from amazon.com so When we did that interview, actually, Renee, I hadn't read 100% of it yet, but I've read most of it now, and it's a really great book to get your hands on, and the paperback version makes a lot of sense so that you can just put it in your uh, bag with your rig and be able to have it handy to refer to whenever, although I guess you could put it on your iPad in the same fashion, but uh, the book would be a little easier to refer to out in the middle of the forest. And another thing that kind of ties into the Dustin Kaywood interview that we did, it was just announced recently by wildlife.co.uk that they are organizing a trip to Iceland with Chris Watson to spend a week recording with him and kind of traveling through Iceland for seven days. And it starts uh, June 13th. And as someone who is personally travel around Iceland recording, it is an amazing place to travel and record in. So... If you have the ability and means to uh, take part in this trip, especially with Chris Watson being involved, it sounds like a field recordist dream come true. Yeah, that'd be cool. So tell us a little bit about
1: who Chris Watson is, and, and also, what's the entry fee into that thing? What's the cost?
2: Uh, the entry fee is £1,395, which translates to about 2300 American slash Canadian. So it's certainly not uh, dirt cheap. That does not include the flight to Iceland either. That includes uh, breakfast, <laughs> dinners, and uh, lodging, and then traveling throughout the country and being able to record. And as to who Chris Watson is, he's a famous natural recordist, and he's recorded all around the world. Mostly, I think, famous for work he's done with the BBC.
0: He's done all sorts, though, hasn't he? I think anyone who needs to Google him to do him full justice, he's uh, yeah. been involved in all sorts. But yeah, a very cool guy.
2: Yeah. ChrisWatson.net is his website. He releases CDs. They're all through field recordings, but they kind of tell a narrative. I have a really great one of his CDs that tells the kind of the story of the sounds of the trains going through Mexico. That is really something that you can just put on and listen to endlessly. That sounds cool. Once you learn more about him, this trip becomes even more amazing. And then the landscapes of Iceland and the sounds of Iceland are very unique. So I think it would be a real life-changing trip unfortunately i'm going to be having well my wife is going to be having our first child uh, about a week before this trip so (laughs) i don't think i'm going to be able to get out and uh you can't take credit for that man (laughs) that's exactly
0: the same as happened to me because chris does a lot of well not loads but like once every year or a couple of years he'll do like one of these recording meetups in uk and the last one was at kew gardens one before that was along the river thames and both times, I've got two young boys, and their births have been both around exactly when he's done these meetups, so I haven't
2: been able to do it. It's just <laughs> so inconsiderate. He's clearly out to get us. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, what's the date on that? It starts June 13th, So, and then seven days following that. Right on. And that would be cold. There's been moaning
0: about going on Hampstead. Uh, that'd be a different <laughs> league, wouldn't it?
2: Uh, Iceland in June, that's when I went. It's That's the 24-hour sunlight. Actually, the 21st, the day after you leave, would be the longest day of the year. But in the interior, it got pretty chilly, but uh, along the coast, it was quite nice. Uh, It certainly wasn't shorts and uh, go swimming (laughs) weather, but it wasn't freezing, like you're wearing a a hoodie and jeans. Don't
0: pack your speedos, Yeah,
2: exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The final piece of news we have is DesigningSound.org has announced their January theme, and uh, it goes along the lines of looking at unsung plugin features and ways to have fun and abuse your favorite plugins for sound design. They're looking for guest submissions. And if you would like to do that, you can contact Sean at designingsound.org and let him know if you have an idea of something you'd like to write about or uh, make a video about for the site based on that topic. Cool. My favorite uh, using a plugin for the wrong reason is back when DigiDesign first released the, the I, you know what, everybody says it differently. D I N R. Did you guys say diner or dinner? The, their first noise reduction plugin? I just spell it. D I N R? Yeah. I don't say DAW either. Yeah. No. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> when they first released D I N R, you could overuse it and it made people sound like they were underwater. Cause the artifacts became so over the top and crazy. And I did a series that took place underwater and a bunch of the creatures, we just threw it on D I N R and cranked it. And uh, there you go. Underwater sounds. Awesome. Um, if I
1: can interject one piece of shameless self-promotion news here, no <laughs> um, <laughs> tough <laughs> Dallas audio post has been uh nominated for a tech award for best facility. So we're going up against Dolby and other facilities that are probably going to win, but if you like me and if you like Dallas Audio Post and you are a voter for tech, go check us out on our website. I put up a page that kind of shows how we built. We built our building from scratch and we have a really great architect named Francis Benzella who did all the interior design and we're very proud of our building. And so we're happy to be, we're happy to
2: be nominated, but hey, let's go in. Yeah, it looks really cool. I've never been in your building, but it, the pictures look amazing. Yeah. So it's quite a feat you guys achieved. Congratulations.
0: Like, it should be on something like studio version of MTV Cribs or something like that, I think. So it's really
2: cool. <laughs> yeah it's fun you
1: know it was several years of planning and execution and it was several months of no days
2: off and, and little sleep and kind of getting it all up and running but it sure is great to come to work here that's for sure we should mention just quickly that uh, that's why Dustin couldn't be here today because he's moving studios himself so maybe he'll be up for the award next year yeah you, and never you know. can tell him how all about what it's like to be nominated and hopefully win that's right. So yeah, he doesn't have mouth sores. Let's let's fess up.
1: Ah, oh.
0: <laughs>
2: rough. <laughs> or maybe it's both.
0: <laughs> I'd rather be moving studio than be have mouth sores. So.
1: <laughs> so Michael, thanks again for jumping on the show, man. I mean, I think what you're doing with the Sound Collectors Club is all kinds of great for the community. I love it. I love being challenged to go out and record something every month. And I just have a great time with it. So thanks for getting that thing up and running, man. No problem.
0: No problem. It's uh, my pleasure. It's just it makes it fun, you know, guys like yourself and Tim just really getting involved in it, basically. And, you know, hopefully not taking up too much of your time becoming like a a drag in that way. But it just becomes a way of sharing our experiences rather than it being a solo effort, as it were. So um, as well as building your effects library, it can become this really cool, positive networking sharing experience so um hopefully long may it go on great cool
1: thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show thanks to adele young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers thanks to dustin kaywood for sharing his thoughts you can go to chasingice.com for theaters and showtimes and go check out that massive event thanks to michael marussis for jumping on the podcast with us today you can follow the show at the Tonebenders on twitter And go to tonebenders.net to leave a comment. We'll read it on the air. Also, check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash tonebenderspodcast. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. See ya.
0: Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Find us online at tonebenders.net, where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the Tonebenders, or email us at or Renee at tonebenders.net.